Welcome to the Dive Podcast presented by Willamette Week. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Each week, we tackle a different issue that's uniquely Portland. So tune in every Saturday to hear a new episode complete with interviews and editorial that helps explain our city. From Portland's leading paper comes a brand new way to engage with the news, sports, arts, and culture. Stick around. Welcome to episode 21 of the Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Today is May 22nd, Saturday. It's great to have you with us. We have a great show for you. We're talking about a lot today. We have reporter Andy Pruitt come on and talk to us about her cover story all about beer in Portland. And then we're joined by Sophie Peel, also a reporter with Lama Week. And she talks to us and answers my questions about the biggest stories of the week. We'll get there. Don't worry. Stick with us. But first, all the headlines, everything that happened this week. This is the 90 Second News Flash. The Portland Police Bureau is the only police department among the 75 largest municipal law enforcement agencies nationwide that doesn't use body cameras. But that might change, as the Portland Police Union is offering officers wear body cameras in negotiations after questions arise over police accountability. Speaking of crime, a study found that many people of color are not reporting crimes perpetrated against them due to mistrust of the police. University of Oregon joins many other Oregon colleges and universities by requiring its students to be fully vaccinated before attending class in person in the fall. Last week, we talked about how there was this fund, this federal fund, to support restaurants that uh, were struggling after the pandemic. Well, this fund prioritized restaurants that are minority-owned, and almost a 1,000 of the restaurants that received funding were owned by women, veterans, or black indigenous people of color. The average amount given out to each restaurant was $143,000. The mayor's office released plans to get homeless people into safe housing and off the streets of downtown Portland. The Multnomah County Republicans hired Proud Boys for security, and the report on the Civic Life Bureau was released today. And I know what you're thinking, Hank, you didn't really explain those last three headlines, but that's because we have expert uh, Sophie Peel to talk to us today. She covered those topics in the, her reporting for Willamette Week. So we talk to her, we pick her brain, we go deep in those issues. So stick around to the end of the episode to, to hear more about those big stories. Last but not least, the Blazers faced the Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs. Blazers in four, I can see that happening. This has been the 90 Second News Flash. Folks, our first interview is with Andy Pruitt, known far and wide as a tireless reporter and a beer aficionado. Tasked with the annual beer cover story, Andy found eight beers that showed the resilience and creativity of beer makers in Oregon. In a year when breweries were expected to really struggle, and they did struggle, but the struggle could have been a lot worse had the breweries not gotten creative and found ways to pivot their business model and adapt to the times. Let's talk to Andy about this story. Let's start with this. How has this year been for for beer in Oregon? Surprisingly, not as bad as I think most people feared. I think as soon as the lockdown came, even before when it was imminent, everyone kind of knew that the governor would shut down bars, pubs, restaurants. it, it could go really bad really fast for breweries because they were already coming off of kind of a hard two years where we saw a lot of legacy brands just sort of pack it all up. 
We saw Lompoc go away. Uh, we recently saw Portland Brewing call it quits. Um, Bridgeport, of course, one of the big, one of the oldest in the state and one of the biggest to uh, have that sort of crumble. That really shakes part of the industry. Not everyone, of course. You're always going to have right. up, people coming up new and, and wanting to start their own brewery and inventing something different that will attract a, a fickle drinker, which many drinkers are uh, when it comes to beer. But that really shook a lot of people. And the beverage industry in general, with the rise of cider and then, of course, the spike in uh, seltzer, it's been an, a very unstable industry now for quite a few years. And so that poses a challenge to breweries, especially if you're not innovating and you tend to be an older brewery. So once we see, hey, uh, you're not going to be able to sell your beer on site. You're not going to be able to also sell food with that on site. I think that put the fear of God into a lot of people, whether that was just a beer fan and you wanted to see your favorite watering hole last this thing, uh, or you're a beer writer and you're kind of in the knowledge of the industry or you're a brewer yourself where you have to worry about, you know, I have all these perishables, like what am I going to do with them now? And one of the things I really liked about this article is how you framed it, not in doom and gloom, but as like, here are ways that the industry has pivoted. You know, you had eight different stories of how they pivoted. What was your favorite? Was it the drive-through or what was your, what was your other favorite story? Oh gosh, that's a hard one because I, like I had almost all of them were my favorite, which is why writing so many of them myself this time. Uh, I did love the 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 mold beer in particular that uh, was I think a fun adaptation that was rooted in that particular brewer's uh, heritage his background right. he's born and raised in Poland and if you haven't been to Europe uh, if you haven't been to the Christmas markets if you haven't been there in winter in particular you just might not be fami- familiar as an American drinker that hot beer is a thing. We're more used to like mold cider, warm cider, uh, but certainly not beer. And so t- for him taking the chance, because he's he told us, he said, you know, I, I wasn't even sure if this was going to work or people going to want to even try to taste hot beer. That might kind of sound, sound kind of off-putting uh, to a lot of drinkers used to an ice cold one. And then it takes a lot of time to make this drink. They have to hand prepare, hand tailor each one as it is ordered. But it went off really well. It ended up being popular. Uh, this was at the point where they launched it uh, during the freeze when the governor mandated no indoor service again. But at least you could be served on these outdoor spaces, these patios. I'm not 21 yet. So I want to hear from you when you were experiencing like bar patios. And I, I think Portland summer is one of the best places in the world. So for summer, when I am 21, you know, what's your go to pick? So one of the best patios, hands down, it's brand new in Portland when it comes to a brewery patio is going to be on a roof. It is uh, at the very top of the canvas building in the press blocks in Southwest Portland. So where the Oregonian used to actually like print its hard copies, all those buildings are torn down now. They built these really nice condo and office buildings there. And at the very top of one of those office buildings is a brewery patio by Migration. And the view is probably one of the best anywhere in town when it comes to a rooftop. 
take us behind the curtain. How did you find eight beers, eight storylines to pursue? That was one of the more challenging aspects of this project. I knew going in, I wanted to tell the various stories of the year that was this strange, terrible in so many ways, but inspiring in so many others, uh, 2020 picture, but not just do profiles. I mean, you can do a, a bunch of profiles, but I wanted to give it just a different sort of frame. So I, I instantly actually thought of that mold beer that threshold unveiled last fall and they kept it on all through winter and i was like you know that's that that speaks to something very unique but a couple other uh, tap rooms they they mold some drinks as well so it spoke to the larger trend of one trend of 2020 we're all stuck outside in the dead of winter drinking and we probably don't want to what was a solution to that well thresholds was introducing this polish mold beer so it's like that can kind of stand for a symbol of the larger trend that was serving warm drinks on patios to try to survive the winter, to draw customers to your cold patio when they probably didn't want to go out. And so that was one of the first ones. And I was like, gosh, if I could think of enough of these, maybe five, maybe seven, like that would be a good theme to have. And I was like, but what are these other beers? So I it just took brainstorming it to going back to uh my experience myself in 2020, which was fortunately one of my beats, not a bad job to have it all during a pandemic, uh, being a, the beer patio writer. I went to lots of beer patios and I wrote them up and I noticed what people were serving or what they were doing differently. So I just kind of went back to those notes and I reviewed those stories to pinpoint others that stood out. To end our show, we are joined by Sophie Peel. Sophie has covered some of the biggest and most interesting stories of the past week or two, and I had questions about three stories in particular. Here is that interview. You, you've written stories about a lot of different interesting topics, but I want to start with your most recent topic chronologically, um, and that is the discussion that went on between the mayor's office and, uh, and uh, several of the largest law firms in Portland. So can you give us a little overview with that story, and then I'll ask you some questions about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so last week, Sam Adams was invited to a meeting um, with about 25 or 30 of uh, Portland's um, kind of large and medium-sized law firms um, to discuss sort of uh, what they call quote-unquote livability issues. Um, the the focus of the conversation um, seemed to be, you know, how many homeless people are downtown and kind of the proliferation of tents downtown and outside of some of these people's offices. Um, and, and basically what these law firms said, and I, you know, I, I talked to a few different people who were in that meeting, um, but they were saying that, you know, people had, people sort of had different levels of concern about, you know, homelessness downtown, but they said, you know, our, our employees are likely coming back within anywhere from between, you know, like two months to the fall. 
And if this issue doesn't start to improve, then, you know, once our leases expire, we might just leave downtown. Yeah. And I think an interesting thing you brought up in the article was that there's a fear that if these law firms leave downtown, that there'll be kind of a domino effect on the whole city, because not only do they pay a lot of money in rent, um, in these downtown marquee areas, but also they have thousands and thousands of employees um, who live and, and work and eat around there. So are we really facing something that's really as dramatic as, as the lawyers are saying? Or could this be really problematic for our city? I think it's really hard to know. I think it's really hard to project six months into the future, a year into the future. I mean, I think a lot of it does hinge on on policy decisions. And if these businesses are sort of pacified by what the mayor is planning on doing. Um, but again, I, I mean, yes, I think it, it would be concerning if there was a mass exodus out of downtown, because it has sort of been, you know, the vibrant epicenter of of not only the county, but also, you know, Oregon in general. Last question on this topic. I want to I want to start with this passage that you wrote in this article, and it's from the it's from Adams reiterating what some of the lawyers had said. And he says, uh, we're Portlanders. Uh, He says that the lawyers are saying this. Lawyers are saying we're Portlanders. We love the city. We're compassionate. We're humane. But unless some order is brought to this disorder, uh, we'll be looking for a change when when we're leases, when our leases are up. Um, It almost seems like. And I hate to say this, but is Trump correct? Is there's is there a law and order problem uh, going on in the city? Because that seems to be the type of message that the lawyers are uh, are saying. Obviously, not a direct quote from Trump, but Trump was was bringing up this issue. Um, it's a complicated issue, but no, I w- I wouldn't describe it as disorder. And we need to bring it back to order. I mean, I think as far as vandalism and property destruction goes. It is mostly a young group of predominantly white late teens, early 20s that are doing this property destruction um, that, you know, though it's it's not representative of a, a larger, more inclusive, um, you know, social justice movement. So I think in, in that point, yes, like, yes, there's disorder with that. But again, it's such it's such a tiny subsection of the population that has sort of dominated national news as well. All right, on to the next topic. There was a report on civic relief that was just released that you covered an article. Can you tell us what that report said? Yeah, so the one on the Civic Life Bureau? Yes, exactly. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically that, that bureau um, has been in a little bit of disarray for the past few years. There's been really high employee turnover. Um, you know, earlier this year, OPB reported on a meeting that uh, Commissioner Hardesty had with the employees there who, you know, alleged pretty severe abusive management um, you know, gaslighting, emotional manipulation, mistreatment. I mean, it was it was it was a lot. Um, and this this report was done. Um, I'm not sure if it was late last year or early this year, um, but the DA Mike Schmidt ordered that it be released to the public. So uh, initially, it was just supposed to be sort of an internal memo that Hardesty and man- management at Civic Life could look at and sort of recalibrate their system and make it more equitable. Um, but the DA ordered that it be released to the public. It was released yesterday. Um, and it's it's pretty damning. Two days after the DA ordered that it be released, the, the then director of Civic Life, um, Sukri, 
was was let go. You know, the the email that Hardesty sent to employees made it seem like a very amicable split. Um, but it it was, I think it's hard not to suspect that there was right. there was some sort of timeline going on there. I mean, it just seems like a little bit too much of a divine timeline that the DA, you know, ordered it be ordered that report be released two days prior to Hardesty saying, you know, re is re is out. Hardesty has been applauded by many in the community for speaking truth to power, what, whether over the over the last few months, whether it's around police brutality and uh, law enforcement. Is this an instance that reflects poorly on Hardesty, like you said, with that timeline? Um, I think the optics of it, yes. Then again, I don't think we have the proof there. You know, these are, we're just like, that's, I suspect that re-leaving had something to do with this report becoming public. Um, I, I don't have proof of that. But if, if that is indeed the case, um, yeah, I do think that reflects poorly on Hardesty. It's really hard to prove causation on that, but it definitely would seem like whether it's like a penalty, you know, you should be penalized for, for releasing this report. That does not seem uh, to be too favorable or the type of person that uh, the hardest he's been made out to be because she's kind of been, been made out to be somebody who's a champion for, mm-hmm. you know, people who don't have as strong a voice uh, in the community. So um, and then let's finish up. Let's talk about this really interesting story that you broke about. Uh, the Proud Boys being being hired, or the the activists and Proud Boys being hired for security services. Can you tell us about what's going on there? Yeah, so it was on May six. The Multnomah County Republican Party had you know a regular meeting, um, and there was a next door post sort of floating around on Twitter a little bit. It didn't get much traction. Um, a post saying, you know, we think there were Proud Boys patrolling our neighborhood the other day outside of this church in the Montevilla neighborhood. We don't know what's going on. Um, and Willamette Week had reported, I think, two or three days prior that the Republican Party was going to be having this recall vote to try and recall the the chairman, Stephen Lloyd. Um, but, you know, they made it very clear, like, we're not telling anyone the location because, you know, we don't want Antifa to come storm us or, you know, the lefties, as they call us. Right. Um, and so I saw that next door post and I, I just got a little suspicious. So I started poking around. I called the, I called the church um, and one of the pastors there was very forthcoming with me. He said, you know, we, it was the Multnomah County Republican Party. We didn't know who we were leasing this space to. We regret this decision. Obviously, they didn't know Proud Boys were going to show up. Um, and so he was like, I can give you the number of the, of the guy who sort of set this venue up. So I called this guy, Tim Sitzma who is a precinct committee person for the Republican Party. And he was very forthcoming with me. He sent me all the documentation about how, um, you know, the uh, the vice chair and the secretary of the Republican Party had, you know, signed this agreement um, with Daniel Tews, who's known to be a pretty close Proud Boy affiliate. But yeah, that he, you know, it was, it was a volunteer uh, security service. Um, and I think that's how they probably got around some Oregon bylaws about who can who can provide armed security is that it was, you know, a, a sort of a I mean, it was a formal agreement, but it there was no, you know, financial transaction within that. Is there something illegal going on here or is it just like kind of gross? Um, I think it's hard to say. I've actually been meaning to talk to. Uh, a lawyer about this to see if it actually broke bylaws. Again, I think how they may have, you know, exploited a loophole is not having it, um, 
be uh, a financial transaction. But again, I'm not entirely sure if if it's illegal. I think what you know, the Proud Boys represent everything wrong. I mean, they are bigots, they're racist, they're sexist, they're homophobic, they're transphobic, they have every phobia. They're a very dangerous group of insecure men who think their power is being taken away from them. And the fact that the Multnomah County Republican Party, a faction of them and a fair amount of those people who are in leadership are actively inviting these people that they know represent these things into their party. So to me, I see it as like a a descent into lunacy for, for this party. I don't know. I guess it's, I guess I was way more startled by this story than anyone I talked to about it. Like no one seemed all that surprised. And I was like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> well, that might be part of that might be part of why it's crazy is that nobody is surprised by it at this point. And then just one last question on it. So clarify for me, did they know that they were hiring Proud Boys? Um, I mean, there's no way they didn't. I will say that. Okay. So Kim Sitzma, who sent me, who sent me the agreement between, you know, the secretary and the vice chair and the sergeant in arms, whatever the hell that is. And um, Daniel Tews, when I asked him, so you were the one who made this connection between the proud, you know, Daniel Tews and in the Republican Party. Did you know he was affiliated with the Proud Boys? And he said, I had heard rumors and I had seen him at events, but That's I didn't. That's a yes. Know. It's a right. It's a yes. Started out having fun, just another way to play. Now I'm falling headfirst into unforgiving ways. Well, folks, that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe and have a great week. Also, uh, come back on Wednesdays for our episodes of Distant Voices, where the newsroom interviews people who are dealing with the pandemic. Really interesting stories in each episode. And then obviously come back next Saturday for episode 22 of the Dive podcast. We'll have a blast again. For Willamette Week, I'm Hank Sanders. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. For more information on this podcast or the biggest stories in Portland, go to wweek.com and follow Willamette Week on all socials. We're doing some really cool things related to the podcast on our Instagram and Twitter. It includes giveaways, behind the scenes, etc. A lot of cool things coming your way, so give those a follow. Special thanks to our guests for joining us, and thank you to Aaron Mesh, Mark Zussman, and Brian Pangamibon, as well as the entire Willamette week family last but not least thank you so much to heather witty and ampmusic.co for the music that you hear on this podcast for willamette week i'm hank sanders this has been the dive podcast Mm -hmm.